Welcome to the Labor History Podcast, produced by Ian Hudson and Victor Liu. Today's subject, Slavery, Emancipation, and the Labor Movement. Based mostly on W.E.B. Du Bois's book, Black Reconstruction, and Philip Foner's book, um, The Labor Movement and the Black Worker. I'm Avery Ware. An injury to one is an injury to all, the old labor movement slogan, is really common sense, most likely, for people listening to this podcast. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 82% of the economically active population of the United States are non-supervisory employees, meaning we're the people who can be fired but can't fire anybody else. That 82%, us, that's the labor market. That's the working class. That's the people eligible to join unions. And when you're 82% of the population, that means that we are everybody. We cross all racial and gender lines. And thus, we can't achieve our potential when we're divided. All that, I think, is common sense for those of us listening or presenting this podcast. But as we have discussed in previous sessions, there's no single divide more significant for the U.S. labor movement than that created by white supremacy in the form of anti-black racism. There's no alliance more crucial to the success or failure historically of the labor movement than that with the black freedom struggle. For a competitive economy to work, Labor must, on average, be paid less than the value we produce in goods or services. Therefore, the political and corporate power structure has to organize to keep us disempowered to make that possible. And that's why the labor and union movement's gains come not during the peaceful, normal times when the system is working and we're disempowered, but instead during those unusual times when we come together in mass movements. And since the Civil War, the three main such movements, the 1890s populists, the 1930s labor and strike movement, and the 1960s black freedom struggle, which also fed into the explosive rise of public sector unionism, have all risen through a black-white unification, and all faltered and declined due to the splintering created by a reformulation of racism by politicians. Most recently, mass incarceration, or what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, which in our time was the thing that beat back the last wave of struggle. But before the Civil War, slavery made it impossible for such unification. Four million enslaved black people could not unionize. There were unions in the United States before the Civil War. They were small. They were almost all in the North. According to Philip Foner, these unions played an important role in outlawing and abolishing slavery in the Northern states. Remember, slavery wasn't fully abolished in the last Northern state until 1830. The workers and unions opposed slavery because they feared job competition from slaves. 
and that they themselves could lose their rights as free workers as long as slavery existed. They saw that there were almost no unions in the southern states, as employers in cities like Charleston would actually employ slaves to drive out the free skilled workers. But despite opposing slavery, these early unions shared the white supremacy their members were raised with. Not a single union before the Civil War allowed blacks to join, and as a result the 260,000 free black people could not unionize any more than the 4 million enslaved. Some of the unions forced black workers entirely out of their trades, and black workers were very prominent in the most skilled trades during the area, era of the Napoleonic Wars, when blockades in Europe prevented significant immigration and created a labor shortage. But they were systematically driven out, with unions playing a role, once immigration began again in earnest. And this activity by the unions left them vulnerable to the employers replacing union workers with black workers whenever there were strikes significantly crippling the early unions. And though opposed to slavery, they did not join the abolitionists in fighting to end southern slavery, because they were based in the north and they did not view it as their concern in the south. The one great exception to this in the U.S. labor movement was the New York-based American Workers League, made up mostly of German immigrant workers and founded by Joseph Vedemeyer, Vedemeyer was a veteran of the 1848 revolution in Germany and a close associate of Karl Marx. And he shared with the European labor movement as a whole its legacy, its attitude toward the French Revolution, which they viewed as part of their tradition. The French Revolution was seen in some ways as a struggle against the semi-slavery condition of serfdom and also one that involved the abolition of slavery in Haiti. The slave uprising in Haiti began in 1791, two years after the start of the French Revolution. Slaves abolished slavery in Haiti in 1793. The radical Jacobin government in France legally abolished that slavery. And later, Napoleon turned both on democracy and on Haiti causing Haiti to fight for its independence from France. But in 1793, Toussaint L'Ouverture did not view that as necessary. This was part of the tradition of the European labor movement at the time. And what it meant was that the American Workers League, which was composed of some unions and other workers' organizations in New York, almost all German workers, would expel any member who supported slavery. Uh, the League was influential in that its ideas influenced later union leaders, including Samuel Gompers, and also because some of its members went on to take their abolitionist politics, their labor abolitionism, into the Civil War. Vedemeyer himself became a lieutenant colonel in the Union Army, and German exiles in the Civil War were mostly concentrated in the St. Louis area, 
And it was no coincidence that it was in that precise area where General John C. Fremont issued what was really, during the Civil War, the first Emancipation Proclamation in 1861 as a war strategy. Lincoln at the time forced Fremont to revoke that. But we don't have to be in unions to be part of the labor movement. And some of our most important victories, including last year's West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona teacher strikes, were wildcat strikes done without any official union authorization. So the slaves, though they were forbidden to organize, had always found ways to work together for their freedom. They organized in uprisings led by Gabriel Prosser, Denmark Vesey, Nat Turner, and others. They organized in the Underground Railroad led by Harriet Tubman. Slave spirituals sometimes contained secret codes in which plans for escape from the plantations would be shared. And escaped slaves like Frederick Douglass became leaders of the abolitionist movement. There was not and there could not be any convention of the slaves calling for resistance during the war. But if there had been such a convention, they couldn't have come up with something much more effective than what the slaves actually did anyway. Du Bois reminds us that the slaves were rational actors who, even though it was illegal to teach them to read, carefully observed, understood, and communicated among themselves what was going on in the slave owner's world. For 246 years, they understood their usually hopeless situation, always aching for their chance to strike. In the course of the war, that chance finally came. Not because Lincoln and the North went to war intending abolition. On the contrary, Lincoln did oppose slavery, but he intended to wage the war with the goal of saving the Union by not abolishing slavery in order to maintain the support of the border states. As Du Bois said, the South fought to take slavery out of the Union, the North fought to keep it in. The slaves themselves, however, had other ideas. And Du Bois says that when two things became clear, one, that the Union armies were afraid to send escaped slaves back to their enemies because it would risk defeat, and two, that the slave masters, for all of their, quote, fume and fury, as Du Bois said, were actually uncertain of victory. Once those two things became clear at that movement, the slaves began to take matters into their own hands, ultimately tipping the balance of the war. And it should be remembered that the Civil War was an extremely close contest. Historian James McPherson considers that the North almost lost on five separate occasions. Not only did they tip the balance of the war, but they changed its nature from one merely to save the Union into an actual war of liberation. Union Army General Benjamin Butler's experience was typical. On May 24, 1861, three escaped slaves took shelter with his army. The army had no plans for this. In fact, the South had bragged that slavery was an advantage for them in the war because 
it was claimed, they could keep going at 100% production. They wouldn't draft their slaves into the army, so they could continue full production on the plantations. But what happens when the slaves won't stay on the plantations? Well, we have to put ourselves in General Butler's position. He was marching his army around. They were getting into battles, and every single one of those battles, soldiers were getting killed. Now some slaves show up in the army, people who've escaped. If he returns them, he's helping the enemy, and more of his soldiers are going to get killed as a result. If he doesn't return them, then he's really breaking with Lincoln's overall war strategy. Butler tried to come up with a legal cover for not returning the slaves. He called them contraband of war. But after he did this, put in the work in his camp, word spread. Two days later, on May 26th, eight more escapees came. Forty-seven came the next day, of all ages and both sexes. By July 30th, there were 900, and soon afterward there were thousands. The slaves forced the clarification of army policy, which became, after slaves presented themselves, don't return them, put them to work. Tens and hundreds of thousands assembled in Union Army cities. As Du Bois said, by 1863 there were, quote, swarming crowds of Negroes and white refugees crossing battle lines to the north, and, quote, endless bodies of workers and missionaries were organized to help clothe and house them. Du Bois says that slaves and poor white farmers held the key to the outcome of the war in the South because they produced the food and the provisions that were necessary to wage the war. Of the two, he points out that the slaves actually held the more strategic economic position. The poor whites, after all, were working partly for their own consumption. So, if they were to become refugees, run away, then it wouldn't have the same impact on the war effort. But the slaves were working on capitalist plantations where all of the product was marketed or used for war. Du Bois points out that the freed women and men immediately got to work. For example, around General Grant's camp in Grand Junction, they began cultivating the abandoned farms. There were all these abandoned plantations, so they got to work on them, supplying the army and selling the crops to northern cities. The work that was done by escapees was borne at least as much by women as men, even in the army camps, because most of the work in military camps, portering, cooking, digging, building things, was non-soldiering work. Under General Butler in Virginia and North Carolina, a Department of Negro Affairs was established, and this allowed the freedmen to build cabins and villages, and they started farming and attending newly built schools. On the former plantation of Jefferson Davis in Davis Bend, Missouri, in November of 1864, a large cooperative farming enterprise was set up and people who had been slaves only months before acted as sheriffs and judges in the communities there. The South Carolina Sea Islands under General Saxton became another very successful and well-organized group of self-governing ex-slave communities. The freed women and men quickly became self-sustaining. 
the federal government actually began taxing free worker workers' wages to help the sick and the dependent. And it was feared that these laborers, never having had experience with taxation before, would object, but instead they were flattered at being asked and readily agreed to help support their needy. Du Bois points out that the ex-slaves, who had been worked to death for centuries, would not have left slavery for immediate labor in army camps, on farms and in small towns, and in the army where they would kill or be killed, if they were merely running away just to escape their immediate situation. Instead, they escaped with the shared political aim of victory for the North via abolition. And just as the withdrawal of their labor from the Confederacy in what Du Bois rightly calls the first general strike in U.S. history, just as that general strike crippled the South's war effort, the bestowal of that same labor to the Northern economy and the Union Army gave a shot in the arm to the North's war. As they thus bolstered the Army, it became more and more irrational for Lincoln to maintain his original strategy of fighting the war without touching slavery. And what Benjamin Butler did in 1861, Lincoln eventually did himself for the entire country through the Procl Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. The proclamation didn't free all the slaves. It kept slaves in the border states in slavery. But that proclamation, in spite of Lincoln's intention that it remain merely a wartime measure of military necessity, began to actually change the war into one of liberation. And that brought crucial labor solidarity from across the sea. Another refugee from the 1848 revolutions in Germany was Karl Marx, now in exile in England but also working as a correspondent for Horace Greeley's New York Tribune, the largest circulation newspaper in the United States. Marx followed events in the Civil War closely and had argued from the start that the war could only be won if it became a war to free the slaves. He wrote to Lincoln, urging him to adopt this course. He also argued for workers of all countries to unite. And what that meant in this situation was that he argued that British workers should support abolition as the only way to build a stronger labor movement in the United States by clearing the way for all laborers, black and white, to organize together. As he said, labor in a white skin cannot emancipate itself while it is branded in the black. This was all very important because at the time the English government was considering declaring war on the North. Since the start of the war, the North had created a naval blockade on the southern states and that stopped the shipments of cotton picked by slaves to British textile factories. That caused dramatic economic damage in England. The English ruling class also thought that if the North won the Civil War, they'd unite the country into a mighty combination of industry and agriculture with the kind of population base that in the long term would threaten British dominance in world trade. It turned out to be right about that. For the working class in England, the effects were dire. 
In Manchester, the main manufacturing textile city, there was massive unemployment and actual starvation. There were also riots. The British government feared working-class revolt because England had been the first country to experience a nationwide union movement in the 1840s, as it was the first union country to have a, a uh, industrialization. So when the Emancipation Proclamation made it much clearer to the world that the system of slavery hung in the balance, Marx acted to convince the London Trades Council to intervene against British intervention. And the result was a mass demonstration of some 3,000 people sponsored by the London Trades Council addressed by Karl Marx, declaring that although it is true that we have been hurt by this blockade, we will not shed blood to maintain slavery, and we support abolition. This was significant in declaring the intentions, the intentions of the uh, British working class before a government that feared them at the time, and was a significant factor in preventing Britain from declaring war on the North. This, too, probably prevented Northern defeat. If England had declared war on the North, that could certainly have tipped the balance. These international labor solidarity organizing efforts also led directly to the founding of the First International, or International Workingmen's Association, which was the forerunner of unions and socialist and communist parties that would spread around the world starting in the 1890s. So not just the U.S., but the worldwide labor movement has a common origin, common history, common roots with the emancipation of slavery in the United States. But perhaps the most important aspect of the general strike of slaves fleeing the plantations was recruitment into the Union Army. On May 22, 1863, five months after the Emancipation Proclamation, the Bureau of Colored Troops was created to facilitate recruitment. Despite unequal treatment, 200,000 blacks joined the Northern Army. Significant numbers of Native Americans also joined through the Bureau of Colored Troops. The black soldiers' numbers, but also their exceptional battle courage, made a decisive difference on the military battlefield. These were people fighting for their freedom. And 20% of black soldiers died in service, which was 35% more than white Union troops. 15 of them received the Medal of Honor. After the war, abolition meant the labor movement became a serious force in U.S. society for the first time. During Reconstruction, the eight-hour workday became a nationwide rallying cry, and the first nationwide union federations were formed, the National Labor Union and the Colored National Labor Union. The NLU didn't prevent blacks from joining, but it didn't have very many, and the two federations could have considered themselves allies. Neither one survived Reconstruction, but in the 1880s, the Knights of Labor and the American Federation of Labor formed. The Knights brought black and white workers together. And at first, the AFL expelled any union that discriminated against black or Mexican or Southern European workers, as was common. But the AFL would expel them if they did that. 
In later decades, that tragically changed, as with the rise of full-fledged Jim Crow after the defeat of populism in the 1890s, the AFL adapted to and became in itself an enforcer of Jim Crow. Racism thus continued to haunt and invade the labor movement in crucial ways down to the present day, a story for future discussions. But after emancipation, black workers could never again be totally excluded from organized labor, and labor would never shrink back to anything less than a national political force. As Du Bois argues, the 500,000 slaves who escaped, fought, organized, and worked were undertaking the first general strike in U.S. history. Like most general strikes, it was mostly spontaneous rather than organized. Of course, in this case, there was no central organization to organize it. General strikes would later, in 1886, be the key turning point towards winning the eight-hour day. In 1934, in Toledo, Minneapolis, and San Francisco, providing the force to pass the Social Security Act. In 2006, when undocumented and other immigrant workers took the day off work, they became the key force defeating the Sensenbrenner Law, which is a racist anti-immigrant law. And the Seattle general strike of 1919 would show the possibility of placing production and industry under workers' control. But none of these general strikes or much of the rest of our labor movement's accomplishments since would have been possible if the slaves hadn't first freed both themselves and the labor movement from the heavy burden of slavery.